All right, guys. Well, welcome. I'm excited to have John Crowder here. And uh, I pulled some stuff off your website. I think most of the, the people here know you. But uh, I truly love your idea to the, the gospel, to ministry. It's supposed to be fun. Barb and I totally agree with that, that he came to give us life and life more abundantly. And it's just more fun. And uh, what what he and his wife Lily said here is to see the church and the world infused with its identity in Christ, the revelation of our union with him, and also release a creative new movement of ecstatic believers who are enthralled by the finished works of Christ and to demonstrate miraculous lifestyles. And so I just wrote, that sounds like a lot of fun and real good news to, to me. And so I just think whatever you want to share, whatever is burning in your heart, I totally agree that, you know, maybe if you want to hit on some what did the early church think about the gospel? What did the early church think about the miraculous? I, I'm, I think I'm like you. I personally think it's the same spirit. And uh, miraculous is just another word for who we're, we're designed to be. We're mirrored to be. We're, we're above the natural, which is all supernatural is. And, uh, and just share the good news. So that being said, uh, just appreciate you jumping on, my friend. Here's John Crowder. Whatever you want to share. You got open mic night. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, having me on here. And it, I've been encouraged to see what you guys are, are doing there. I think I told you just the other day, uh, just amazing community that you guys are putting together there in Colorado. And it's also cool to see lots of uh, friends and familiar faces on here with us tonight. So yeah, let, let's have some fun. Uh, maybe, maybe just to give folks a little bit of background. Uh, you know, when we first started doing ministry some years ago, uh, I wrote a book called The New Mystics, and I had lots of supernatural church history in there and stuff that usually gets clinically removed from seminary textbooks. I mean, stories of guys literally floating off the ground and, and like crazy stuff that you just think is legend, even though a lot of this stuff has happened in recent, recent times. And so, um, you know, we were definitely plunged headlong into the whole charismatic stream and, and, and I, I love the supernatural. I, I, I really do. Supernatural Christianity is normal Christianity. And, and we do see crazy stuff all the time. We see blind eyes opening, deaf, deaf ears opening, tumors falling off of bodies, weird stuff. I mean, I, like, I get bored. I like weird stuff, you know, yeah. teeth growing in people's heads and gold teeth, silver teeth. We've seen fat shrink off of people's bodies. I mean, stuff that you, you can't make this up. Somebody's standing up there. They're not wearing their Spanx. They're not wearing their, their jeggings. <laughs> and, uh, and, and right in front of everybody, they're, just, they're, they're, they're holding their, their pants out to here. So, I mean, we, we've seen crazy stuff. And this shouldn't, like, befuddle us, right? I mean, praise God for movements today like, like, like Bethel and these, these bigger, you know, type of ministries that, that people are getting a revelation, like, for the supernatural, like the supernatural is our portion. And I think, you know, since the age of enlightenment, especially, and just this over-focus on rationalism, and you look at like liberal theology, for instance, I mean, the, the big thing is you, you write off all the, the miracles, anything that, that doesn't fit within that particular sort of Greco-rationalistic worldview. So this was a big focus of ours at the beginning. But at the same time, uh, I had been really influenced by the Toronto Renewal. Uh, back in the 90s, which, as you know, uh, swept across every denomination. I mean, you had Lutherans and Methodists and uh, you name it. People were experiencing this supernatural joy, you know, call it what you will. Drunk in the spirit is the big word. But but every every mainline denomination in the church had a history with that tangible, ecstatic presence of God. I mean, if you're Catholic, you called it contemplation. If you were a Pentecostal, you called it uh, baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Holy Ghost, or whatever it may be. So, um, but, but again, that, that sort of, that, there's been a bit of controversy <laughs> in my ministry because, you know, each of these things can really set people off. I mean, to talk about the miraculous, a lot of people, their grid is just a late night televangelist trying to sell some miracle spring water or whatever. Or if you, you talk about these type of experiential things where people are flopping on the floor and laughing their head off. I mean, th this kind of stuff, it, it carries a stigma to it. And, and, and man, you, you, you can really irritate people, but you'll get irritated at the miracles. You'll get irritated at, at the joy. Uh, I, mean, or, I mean, I get a lot of trouble just, just for having fun. You know, you do anything, just don't enjoy the Lord too much. 
<laughs> I mean, how many of you guys know joy is a fruit of the spirit, depression's not, and, and we're created for this lifestyle of, of bliss and, and the, the enjoyment of his presence, not just reading the menu, but being satisfied and intoxicated on the fatness of his house. And, and you see all throughout church history, there were mystics and ecstatics and, 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 uh, and, and, and hermits and desert fathers and revivalists like, like John Wesley or George Whitfield, where, where th- these crazy types of manifestations are happening. And, and, and every generation thinks they're like the first one to discover Holy Spirit. But, but as a matter of fact, uh, th- there's always been throughout church history, a, a flow of people experiencing this, this ecstatic tangibility of our union. And it's not just a theological proposition, but but we actually can have a good time. And so so this was something, you know, for, for quite a number of years that that sort of I would say we, you know, we sort of put people into genres or classifications in the church. And that was sort of the stripe that we were put under is they're the ecstatic guys or the drunk guys or just the weirdos or whatever. Because, you know, everywhere we, we went, we would see people cheering up and, and that's great. And I, I understand uh, we need to be careful of false joy because it's just like Satan to want to go cheer up a bunch of Christians. So we always encourage people to use their discernment in the meetings, you know, discern your neighbor, make sure they're lapping in the spirit and not in the flesh. Right. (laughs) I mean, my goodness, we're so, we're so wound up. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we started doing this, this online seminary a while back. And, and, and one of the key words we were saying drunken theology, right? Like we, we want happy theology. And uh, one of the guys that we, we get on, I know he's a friend of yours is uh, uh, C. Baxter Kruger, great guy. Uh, Baxter and I are great buddies. And, um, and he loves hanging out with me just because it irritates his theology buddies a lot of times. They're like, why, why do they have to call it drunken theology? He said, look, you don't understand. In their stream, drunken's not the dirty word. Theology is the dirty word. <laughs> And so you, you have these streams, these charismatic streams, where people are wide open to the experience. They're wide open to the miraculous. They're wide open to, to I mean, just about anything. But you, you start to talk theology, and, and they think you went off the deep end. They, they, all of a sudden, you're religious because you, you used your brain or something. And, and one of the things that, that we started to realize is in these streams, you, you would have people just working so hard to access the supernatural, to, to, to try to work up a miracle. You know, it was about killing off your flesh and, you know, ascending and being some sort of, you know, spirit man or whatever. And you got a lot of people trying to run a spiritual race. They don't know how to be part of the human race. And it just, it, weird. And I'm, I'm okay with weird, but I want good weird. I want Christological weird. I, 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 don't, want, I don't want a trip that, that throws everything back upon myself of what I got to do to access God or get more anointed or climb some hill as if I haven't already fully arrived in Jesus. And so we'd even see people come into the meetings that they, they, they were into the experience, this ecstatic joy that we're talking about. They, they, were, they were getting cheered up, but even then, um, you know, they, they thought drinking in the spirit, they would turn that into a work. Like the weirder you got or the drunker you got, the closer you were getting to God. And I'm like, man, I'll flop on the floor with the best of you, but I'm not, I'm not drinking to get closer to God. I'm feasting on a union that I already have. And so we realized that a big piece of the puzzle that was missing was, well, what I'd like to call the gospel of Jesus Christ. (laughs) But again, to do any type of theology, to begin to talk about God, uh, man, people are frustrated. And I understand. I mean, theology has been pimped out by religious minds for a long, long time. But a lot of people, they're like, what's the point? Uh, they, and they've pitted it in their mind where theology versus experience. But the, the two were never to be pitted against one another or head versus heart. But in the Greek, that's just one word. And, and so I, I get the frustration where people are like, look, it, it's just about everybody's own opinion. There's some truth to that. There are a lot of pin- opinions out there. So the question is, how do we even begin to do theology? But it is important that we make an attempt because everybody already has a theology. 
You can say, brother, I don't need theology. I just believe what the Bible says. Okay, well, you believe your interpretation of the Bible, which is your theology. Everybody has a theology. Theology is just our perspective of God. And you've got a happy one or you've got a crappy one. (laughs) What we need is some theological Prozac. They used to call this good news for a reason in the early days. And you know, Paul, he says, you know the truth. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's got their doctrine figured out, but the gospel is like this tuning fork in our heart that when we hear it, something resonates. It may irritate us, we may reject it, but somehow deep down we know it's true. And one of the things I am so grateful for in those early days of like experiencing the the renewal stuff and all of that was just this concept of the Father's love that the frequency of God is joy unspeakable and full of glory. And I'm not talking about just, you know, the joy deep, deep, deep down in my heart. You know, a lot lot of people, you've heard this before, brother, I've got joy, but it's not the same as happiness. Okay, so you've got the unhappy version of joy. You should let your face know about it every now and then. (laughs) So, so, uh, you know, (laughs) we need some good news. But how do we even begin to approach theology? Because this is extremely important. There's a lot of methodologies out there. For a lot of people, their theological starting point, when they start to talk about God, it begins with all these abstract principles, these concepts that they cobble together. And they'll absolutely use scripture. Of course, they're going to cobble it together from scripture. But they use these these metaphysical uh, concepts that we really don't even know what they are. You talk about God. Well, God is holy. Do you even know what holy means? Uh, He's sovereign. What do you know about sovereignty? He's just are you kidding me? Our society knows nothing about justice. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. You know, he's all powerful. You know, his wrath, his mercy, all these philosophical conceptual terms, or you really want to get philosophical. You've got the, the big Greek omni words, right? Like he's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. And, and, and we've got all these big things. And, and you guys, you know, you, you've been to Ikea before, you know, Ikea, where you get the really uh, well-built furniture in a box. And it comes with uh, the little, the little uh, aluminum Allen wrench. And, all, and, and so you, you remember, you, you go to there, and it's Swedish. So you buy some uh, shelf, you know, it's usually when you were in your college dorm or whatever, and you, you get a good deal on this Swedish uh, shelf. It's called a Bajorkendork or something. You know, it's got the dots over the O's and the name. And, and you get this thing, and you start, you start putting this together. And this is how most people do their theology. You know, they, they've, they've got their Bible, of course. It all starts here. And, uh, and, and they've got their, their sections. And this is what we think about creation, and this is what we think about the law. And then we've got the prophets, and then you've got a little section on Jesus and Christology, and then you've got a, a sanctification and morale, all these things. And the end times, and we'll write 50 trillion books on the mark of the beast and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and they get all of these, these concepts and, and they, they start putting together their bajorkin jork. And what they have is they, they build this God contraption and they're trying to connect all the dots over these things. And, and then, you know, you got this thing and, 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 and what do we do? The next thing we do is we start breaking into camps and you've got the Calvinists and Arminians and Presbyterians, Pentecostal, liberal, conservative, traditional, progressive, whatever it is. And, and everybody you know, is, is building their Bajorkin dork and their God apparatus. And then they go to war because that's what you do, because my God apparatus is better than your God apparatus. And everybody claims to have a high ground of the truth. Everybody claims to, you know, be, be founded on the word of God. Well, for starters, this is not the word of God. Jesus Christ is the word of God. Now, these are words of God. Don't get me wrong, but you can kill a lot of people with this. And you see, once these guys all go to war together against one another, what they don't realize is that, and I don't mean this in a good way, like church unity, but the problem is they're all actually in the same camp, okay? Because all of them, that little aluminum Allen wrench is their mind. 
and they are trying to build this Bajorkendork, this God contraption, this God apparatus, this idolatrous version of God. And they're all starting from the same faulty beginning point. It is a theology from below, trying to figure God out and standing over and against all of them is God himself. And so we have all of these camps who have just arrogantly overlooked something. They fit God into their little doctrinal boxes. But what they've overlooked is the the ineffability of God. And that means our finite minds have no capability of grasping him. Now, you can apprehend God, right? Like a football. You can catch it but you're not going to wrap your hand all the way around that thing. You're not going to figure him out with your four pound brain. Okay. So this is the ineffability of God. And what I have, I've got a a few verses here, just in case you've got God figured out. (laughs) Let me assist you tonight with a little deconstruction. Uh, First Timothy six, 15 and 16. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. And if we want to take this Old Testament for a minute, you got Job 5.9, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Job eleven seven. can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? The psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. And Isaiah says, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen. He says in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. Guys, he is beyond description. And you can't reason back into the being of God. You can't project your ideas, no no matter how biblical they may be, back into the being of God and understand anything about him because only God knows himself. And there's something that we tend to overlook is that creature-creator distinction. Now, I didn't say separation, but a distinction that lies at the heart of our knowledge of, of God. Augustine said the finite cannot understand the infinite. Numbers 23, God is not man. He's not only man. He is not like us. Psalm 50, the Lord says, you thought I was altogether like you. See, when we're declaring the ineffability of God, we are confessing that he evades all our statements about him. He escapes all of them. I love that how in the Psalms, the psalmist says that his greatness is unsearchable. Uh, Psalm 106, who can utter the mighty deeds of God? or declare his praises. It's above us to even declare his praises. As Psalm 40 says, none can compare with you. His wonders are more than can be told. God's deeds and thoughts are unfathomable. So ironically, we are told to declare his praises, and yet we're told they are beyond declaring. (laughs) Unutterable, you can't utter them. Incomparable, cannot compare them. Innumerable, you cannot number them. Inexpressible, and so many adjectives we could pull out of the hat here tonight. (laughs) He's outstanding among 10,000, but what do we do? We make these flippant, vapid statements about God, or we squeeze him into our paradigms of conservatism, liberalism, socialism, capitalism, evangelicalism, Catholicism, orthodoxy, and we all slap that Jesus fish on the bumper sticker because Jesus endorses my ideology and my God contraption. He he sits in my smorgendorf, and how can we so boastfully assume that he endorses all these agendas of our pet doctrine, and he fits tidily within our little theological camp or our ideological stream. We can't grasp it. And guys, my favorite, as in the the end of the book of Job, after God shows Job the vastness of his intricate making of the cosmos, you know, the the weaving together of the Pleiades and the, the, the whales and the dolphins in the ocean, and then Job is forced to say, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small 
a whisper we hear of him. And, and like Job, it just makes us want to put our hand over our mouths and say nothing. Job 29, then the Lord answered him out of the whirlwind. He said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then Job answered the Lord. He says, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I mean, guys, sometimes, wouldn't it be beautiful, especially in this world of social media, if we could just shut up? What if we had International Shut-Up Day? Wouldn't it be beautiful? I mean, he is to be contemplated more than spoken of. Even in our highest experience of him, Augustine said he is still vastly, infinitely more real than that experience of him. So does this mean that all of our theological endeavors are in vain? Absolutely not. Does this mean God leaves us in the dark? Absolutely not. What it means is that the starting point of how we do theology from the bottom up with that little Allen wrench, beginning with the human mind, that is total and absolute vanity. This Bible is not a patchwork quilt that we try to figure out how it all fits together. And here's the chapter headings and life hacks for every topic. But let me tell you, there is one and there is one only one way in which we can know anything about God, and it is not a bottom-up approach. It is a top-down approach. Jesus comes on the scene, and in the midst of all of these professional religious guys who had an edge, who had a market on God, what does John say in, in, in chapter 1, verse 18? He says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. See, guys, God has chosen to reveal himself. He has plainly published himself. He cannot be discovered. He is only self-revealing. He comes to us in flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, to unveil the mystery of the ages, to enter into our humanity and disclose and lay bare the mystery in person. He couldn't just send an agent or a teacher or a guru or a prophet who could only know in part, who could only know in a fragmentary way. God had to come in person if he's going to communicate himself. And so Jesus did not just bring a message. He is the message. He didn't just bring a word. He is the word. The eternal mystery that could never be unfolded by the mind of man, but has definitively revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, he, he represents something radically different from that bottom-up approach, a God-toward-man motion of God himself come to reveal himself, not with a set of metaphysical ideas or scriptural life hacks, but he's revealed all there is to know in person. And, and one of the things he does is actually throws a monkey wrench into a lot of those abstract ideas that we had about him. For instance, how can you talk metaphysically about God's sovereignty? He, you know, he's in charge of everything and then end up blaming him for evil and sickness like our hyper-Calvinist brothers. If Jesus comes healing the sick, and, and, and how do you talk abstractly about justice and holiness if Jesus comes forgiving sinners? Or, 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 or uh, letting hookers off scot-free, you know, it turning the law on its head. We must begin all our talk and all of our knowledge about God with the person of Jesus Christ, not with humanistic logical concepts. There's only one way to do theology. He's come in person. Jesus Christ is perfect theology. And he himself, and we talk about love. That's a big one, right? God is love. God is everybody. Everybody says that. But, but, you know, Jesus Christ is the definition of the love of God, not the other way around, because there's a lot of definitions of love out there as well. So by beginning our understanding of God with the person of Jesus and then working out from there with that foundation, we begin to realize he actually does give understanding, gives quite a lot of understanding. <laughs> so this is, this is important, guys, that we have to start here. 
And if we had this as our lens, our hermeneutic, you know, that how do you interpret? How do you interpret this? If Jesus Christ is our interpretive lens, if he really is the logos, if he is the, the reason, the logic, the science of God, if he is all that God is, the visible image of the invisible God, then everything in here is pointing to him as its ultimate end. You know, I grew up as a kid in a very legalistic Pentecostal church. And uh, you'd make a deal with God every now and then when you got in trouble. That's how it worked with a transactional God. You know, you get caught smoking behind school or something like that when you're 11. And then uh, you've you've got to make a deal with God to get you out of trouble. And so I'd make deals and I had to read my Bible. God, I'll read five verses of the Bible. And you don't know how to read the Bible when you're 11 and uh, still smoking cigarettes. And so you get to, uh, you know, you'd start the beginning. You know, you start with uh, in the beginning, Genesis chapter one, and try to work your way through the year-long Bible reading program, which by the way, if you're doing that horrible way to read the Bible, you won't make it. So I get, uh, you know, by the time you get to Leviticus, it gets scary, man. There's fingers pointing at you. You better do this. You better do that. You didn't do this. You're going to hell. And I'm freaking out. But now when I look at the scripture, it's everything is pointing to him. Everything is pointing to Jesus. He's the, the, the red heifer that they're looking for. He's the turtle dove. He's, it's all Jesus, right? And, and so that, that hermeneutical lens, Jesus is not one chapter in the book. He is the telos, the end, the ultimate purpose, the aim of it all. The entire cosmos was created so that Christ would be born. It's all summed up in him. If he is the revelation of God, then God looks like Jesus. There's not some other God hiding behind Jesus' back, not some dark side of God that has to be appeased. God really is other giving love. God really is in a good mood. That's, that's great. I mean, look at his first miracle. Turn 600 liters of water into unfermented grape juice. Look at this. 600 liters of water into wine. That's his first miracle. Now imagine you're standing around. This is water, by the way. Uh, Lord, we, dear God, hear me, hear me tonight. Turn it into something better. But imagine this, you're just standing around and here this guy, Jesus comes on the scene, turns 600 liters of water into wine. I think I could hang out with a guy. I think I could follow a rabbi like that. I mean, it tells you something about the nature of God, right? He's in a good mood. So... (laughs) When we look at Jesus as the blueprint of all that God is, as God in the flesh, well, we start to notice something else as well, because Jesus starts to introduce us to his Father. And, 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 and we see this other character here, the Holy Spirit, and suddenly there is plurality in, in the being of God. So God is not alone. He's, he's not some sourpuss, uh, uh, socially distancing guy who just doesn't want to hang out with everybody, but, but God actually has never been alone. And you know, that, that solitary monad God that we think of as G-O-D, he, he's always been alone. And he doesn't care if you hang out with him or not. He doesn't care if you jump into the party or not, because he's always been alone, always will be alone. But when you see God as Trinity, well, it begins to change everything. And and you see that God's primary nature is not even creator, but father. See, you're not just some disposable trinket that he fashioned, but your sons and daughters. And, And we see that emerging within our understanding of God, by looking at Jesus, God's own self-revelation, uh, you know, not that abstract, solitary, nebulous, faceless, God contraption, smorgasburgen that we made, that, that, that his Trinity, that, that he is persons in relation. It, it brings a love to light that is not so much just to be calculated and analyzed as to be received and to be enjoyed. And we see that God is not an impersonal force, but there is a diversity of persons in his very being in which real communion takes place and family and an eternal party. And there is a party that is bouncing between Father, Son, and Spirit from the very dawn of creation. And we begin to realize this whole thing was about adoption. And we learn most definitively something about ourselves, that we were created in Christ for that same love relationship that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit, created for adoption, family, union. And therefore, our relation in God 
is grounded foremost, not in just knowing stuff about him, but our primary way of relating to him is in contemplation an intimate participation of our whole being and rooted even foremost in, in, in silence and listening than, than just speaking. I mean, like Peter on the mountaintop, he was trying to build his little tent from Ikea. Remember that on the Mount of Ascension, preoccupied by making a little pup tent to fit God inside of a little doctrinal box. And, and he's like, Peter, just shut up. <laughs> Love you, buddy, but close that yapper for a second. Listen to my son. We become recipients of God, not his architects. It's a lot of work to build God. We're not even his marketers here, trying to box him up in a nifty package. But, but, but the practice of his presence, the enjoyment of him, contemplation, feasting on that union is the highest aim of theology. And it should be the starting point because this is relational theology not just metaphysical or philosophical or intellectual, okay? So <clears throat> Paul never said that we're going to fully understand the mystery. What he says is we have fellowship with the mystery. We have Mr. Mystic living inside of us. We're in union. There's intimacy. There's relationship, not just an accumulation of facts. And so in the midst of, of our unknowing, there becomes this deeper, intimate knowing, like, like Adam knew Eve, or if my people would only acknowledge me, that guys, I'm telling you, it can be more solid than a thousand years in seminary. When we see that God looks like Jesus, man, I, I tell you, it just, it dismantles everything else. Jesus Christ is God in human language. And then this crazy other thing uh, happens here because he is God we can see that Jesus can actually reveal God to us. First Corinthians 2, 9 through 11. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. One of my favorite verses there, actually, to, to declare the divinity of Holy Spirit, because only God can know God. And the Spirit of God fully comprehends God. And now Holy Spirit is leading us into all truth. So now we get to forsake theology and throw our Bible out the window because the Holy Spirit talks to me. <laughs> well, you can join all the other loons out there who are fighting Nephilim and uh, blowing their shofars on the mountaintops, guys, who think the Holy Spirit's talking to them every day. Do I put the red dress on or the blue dress on? And of course, Holy Spirit is talking to us every day. And of course, Holy Spirit is interested in, in a personal dynamic of our life. Absolutely. But guys, we, we've all botched it before, and we can't begin now to rely on our own subjective human interpretation of what the Spirit's saying, okay? The Spirit, John always puts the ministry of the Spirit in a Christological context. The Spirit is always pointing us right to Jesus, testifying of Jesus. He will remind you of what I said. He will testify of me. What if Holy Spirit looks like Jesus? Wouldn't that be something? So, and not just the Jesus of our imagination, because there are a lot of Jesuses out there. You've got Republican Jesus, Democrat Jesus, Martian Jesus, BLM Jesus, Proud Boys Jesus, but Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God of Scripture, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, of one being consubstantial with the Father who for our sakes became man, born of the Virgin Mary who was suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried on the third day, rose from the dead, who ascended to the Father, who will come again in glory, which means goodness to judge the quick and the dead. So this Jesus, Jesus Christ, is perfect theology. And so the mystery of this grand paradox, this unknowable God, is that the infinite became finite, the omnipotent became impotent, the unsearchable became tangible, seen, heard, handled. And now we've been given his spirit of truth to explore this infinite wonder of who he is. 
uh, Colossians 1 says uh, that God chose to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, so what I want to do for just a second here, and um, Mike, if I'm just rattling on and you want to... Oh, I love it, my friend. I just muted, so it's because it's kind of noisy where I'm at, so... Okay, great. Well, if, if you do want to switch gears, that's fine. But nope. these have been my introductory statements. <laughs> uh, what, I, what I would like to do, I want to switch gears a little bit. So, so now if we, if we have this context of, of how to do theology, if we're going to talk about God, we start with Jesus. Jesus is not just one footnote in there. He's not one chapter in the book. It's all about him. Well, that radically changes everything we've known about the gospel. But because religion comes at us, and I'll tell you, religion comes at us in a lot of ways. But here in the Western world, as most of you guys know, the, the big lie is the lie of separation. It's the lie of dualism. God's over there. I'm over here. There's heaven. There's earth. There's the spirit realm. There's the material world. And these dualisms slip in everywhere. And, and the, the first one you see, this really big, well, there's two of them, e- equally big, a separation between Jesus and his father and a separation between you and Jesus Christ. Now, I know because you guys get uh, guys like Baxter sharing, and, and, uh, and, and I know that you guys are in this, this Trinitarian stream, and, and some of this I would be preaching to the choir, but look at this, this huge foundational, uh, this crack in, in, in the Western world, this idea that on the cross the Father was destroying his Son, so that Jesus could, could twist the Father's arm to love us. The Father's love is unconditional. That on the cross, the Father was turning his back on the Son because he's too pure, he's too holy to look upon evil. So what are you saying? Jesus is not as holy as the Father because he can look upon our evil? So you're saying Jesus is not as pure as the Father, which is to say Jesus isn't God, which is to say you're not a Christian? I mean, this this crazy just, just mind-numbing insanity as if the Trinity was imploding on itself on the cross. And to even challenge this in like just two sentences, like I plan to do tonight without too much follow-up, <laughs> it opens these cans of worms because we've been taught our entire life that penal substitution is the gospel, that Jesus was twisting the Father's arm to be gracious to us, but the Father's grace is unconditional. We thought that on the cross, Jesus was changing God, but God does not need changing. We thought the blood was to pay off God, but it was God's own blood. You see, the early church never believed this ridiculous lie that God was saving us from himself. And so what do we have? We've got this pagan view of God, a Jesus who doesn't really look like God. So what's the point of the cross? Wait for it. Not that I could explain all that in one sentence either. (laughs) I'm not saying all that was accomplished on the cross because it's beyond our ability to do so with human language. But what I can say is what did not happen on the cross. And it was not a, a split in the Trinity. Jesus never said, my God, you have forsaken me. He asked a question, why? He asked your human question why. When you feel forsaken by a father who does not forsake anybody. As Baxter would say, our father does not do abandonment. See, Jesus was entering into our human blindness to the love of God in order that we may see. So, If the cross was not paying off an angry father, what was the point of the cross? Well, try this on for size. What if Jesus wasn't changing God? What if Jesus was changing you? What if he was stepping into our darkness, into our estrangement, into our sense of alienation? What if he was stepping into our decay, into our corruption, into our disease? What if we was stepping into our brokenness, into our dilapidated human condition, going right down into the bottom rung of the broken human ladder, exploding our darkness from the inside out with uncreated light, sucking down all of our corruption down the black hole of his own 
broken servant body and spitting us out the other side of the grave, a brand spanking new creation. But you don't get that in most churches, do you? Because it's a process, brother. (laughs) And so what does Paul resolve to know? I have resolved to know nothing among you. He, everything I knew about angels, everything I knew about warfare, all I know now is joy fair. All I know, uh, all I knew about your inner healing and your deliverance and all this. Look, here's the thing. I have resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, the person and the work. So if we look at the work, we just don't get a finished work in most churches, unfortunately. And I'm not knocking the church. I'm wanting to see the Western church reformed. Because we have this idea, you say a prayer, Jesus magically jumps inside of you, and then it's all up to you to actually sanctify yourself. And sanctification becomes the thing you do. Let me tell you, sanctification is not a process. Sanctification is a person. Where do you get that? The Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, he has become our sanctification. What do you see in Romans chapter 6? You see that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, uh, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. What do you see in Galatians 2.20? I have been, past tense, co-crucified with Jesus Christ. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It's not even my own faith. And you know, this is the problem in the Western world. This is the other big lie of religion. You've got the separation and it goes hand in hand with this, the idea that you're still a sinner, that you've got to kill off your old nature because religion is a suicide club. The fact of the matter, we're trying to mortify, you got to mortify your flesh, mortified. We'll read a couple verses before that. Paul says, you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ. Death to self is not a process. This has happened to us before we ever voted on the matter. His death was my death. His resurrection was my resurrection. His ascension was my ascension. His co-seatedness with the Father is my co-seatedness with the Father in heavenly places. And you say, well, John, what what are you trying to say here? Trying to say I'm not a sinner? Hey, you're paying attention. Well, hang on a minute. If I'm not a sinner then why do I still sin? Good question. Maybe you should ask yourself that more often. If I'm not a sinner, why do I still sin? Well, multiple choice options here. A, you're not a believer. Turn to whoever's with you, say it's okay, he's probably not talking about you. Or B, nobody ever told us this before. I mean, what are we told from day one? Well, brother, you're always going to struggle with sin. What verse is that? Uh, You're only human. I'm not. Nobody's perfect. I am. The new has come. The old is gone. Now, look, you mess up. Just confess it. Hey, I messed up. But, but that's still not dictating the truth of who you are. Even confession, as Robert Capon says, is to drag us out of the darkness that never was. You see, what was that old sinful nature? What was that fallen Adamic identity? How do we even define what the flesh was in that sense? It was an identity crisis. We, we forgot what manner of man we are. We forgot the truth of our identity. We were associated with Christ from the foundation of the world. So yes, our mind is being renewed. We are waking up to the reality. I'm not saying we don't mature. Of course we mature. Of course we grow. But Christian growth is not like uh, peeling the onion, right? You guys have heard that before. Oh, you got to peel back that onion. You got a layer of sin, generational curse here. Bitter root judgment there. Uh, uh, there, uh, you know, my, my grandpappy used to chew snuff, and then my great grandmammy used to drink too much. Paps blue ribbon. Look, you're going to have to repent that all the way back to great great grandpappy Adam, and I don't think Ancestry.com takes you that far. Or you can believe that the last Adam came, severed sin at the root, ripped you out of the power of darkness, brought you into the kingdom of his glorious light. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, I know we could go crazy with all these Bible verses. I know all the Bible verses popping off in your head right now. We, we could spend a year on those. 
I don't have time for that. Here's a shameless plug. You can buy my book, Mystical Union, in French. There it is. <laughs> buy it in French. That'll, that'll confuse you all the more. <laughs> Here's the problem. We think we have our own separate cross to carry. Whose cross did Jesus die on? What sin did he commit to deserve his cross? What crime did he commit to deserve his cross? Was it his cross to carry? Whose cross do you think he carried? See, we thought we'd get our own separate cross, and I know some of you have been working hard on it, but we thought we were like the thief hanging next to Jesus, right? Uh, No, listen, much more up close and personal than that. You were mystically in Christ on his cross, two hands, one nail, you died together with him. And so this work is a finished work. We are growing into it, but we're not sinful, like navel gazing for sin all day. Christian growth looks like this. It looks like opening your Christmas presents. Whoa, a lot of glory in there. Jesus is in there. He's better than I thought. I look like him now. I always had, just forgot. Ah, that is what Christian growth is. You're going from glory to glory. It's metanoia. It's the renewal, the changing of our mind. So yes, we grow. But guys, let me just say this, because what you see in the church, and and this is big in the charismatic world, but all throughout the evangelical world, and in in our our Catholic brothers as well, this whole idea that you need 50 years of inner healing, that you've got this perfect spirit who's positionally in heaven that God decided not to be angry at, And then you've got this dirty soul, and then your filthy body is way down the ladder, okay? Well, thanks for the theology, Plato, but you're not going to find that anywhere in Scripture. That is Greek dualism. And this is actually, that comes from Neoplatonism. There was a separation in the Platonic pagan religion that the spirit realm is good, the physical world is evil. And in between the physical earth and the demiurge, the the God force out there, in between were these layers of ethos. And and because the two can't touch one another. And that's where you get spirit. Your spirit's good. Your body's really dirty. And then your soul is kind of the buffer zone. And you know what? Here's the thing. Um, the, The scripture doesn't even say you have three parts. You can try to pull that out of one verse out of which gets mistranslated all the time in second Thessalonians. But, you know, but here's the thing, whether you have, most of the churches believe you've got your unseen parts and your visible parts. Do you have two parts? Do you have three parts? I don't care. John, how could you not care? Well, if the apostles cared one iota about it, they would have at least taught us on it a little bit. It's not even in there. What if your unseen parts are as intricate, like a city without walls, Zechariah 2 says? What if, what if you are a troop without banners? What if, what if your, your, your invisible parts are as intricate as your, your physical body? Here's the thing. We're, we're getting into metaphysics again here. And here's the big deal. Somebody's going to say, well, brother, I know you got three parts because it represents the Trinity, your body, soul, spirit, or the temple. Well, let me ask you, which two persons of the Trinity are still sinful and in need of 50 years of inner healing? Look, at the end of the day, we have to realize the truth. Body, soul, spirit, the entire enchilada was drank down on that tree. And you are absolutely spotless. You are glorious. You look just like your elder brother. Joy is your portion. Amen. And, and, and we are evil free. And, and this is, I know, a scandalous reality, but we haven't avoided scandal so far, have we? Sometimes we need to be scandalized. And let me say this, and, and we'll, we'll wind it down because I know we're almost at the end of the hour. But, but let me say this. Okay, so Paul resolved to know nothing. All right, I have resolved to become an expert in nada. I am pursuing doctorate level studies in the awareness of Jack Diddley Squat, but Christ and him crucified. So we hear this about the finished work. In part, we hear this about the saving act on the tree. But so often, this gets separated from the person, Christ and him crucified. Salvation is not just something that he accomplished on the tree, but something that he intrinsically 
is within his own incarnation. You see, within the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we are bound up in union with the last Adam. He fills everything in every way. It's not just that God was bound up in Jesus Christ, but in the incarnation, he bound the entire cosmos to himself. He has intrinsically bonded himself to every cell, every atom, every fiber, every blade of grass, every distant star in the universe, the divine and human. In the anthro and theanthropic man, Jesus Christ, is the very heart of the gospel. Jesus in his very being is the place of our union. We've been woven together into the humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, if this does not intoxicate you, you're not hearing me right now. We have been woven into the humanity of Jesus Christ, and you have been sat right in the Trinity of God. Right here, right now, you are breathing Trinitarian air. Every breath you've ever breathed is Christological air. This union is what Christology is all about, and Christology is what the gospel is all about. Who is this man, Jesus Christ? Who do you say I am? Fully God, fully man, in one person. The implications are Ephesians 1, and God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way incarnation blows separation thinking out of the water. We see in Colossians 1, in him all things hold together. And this is where Paul can go to the pagans in Acts 17 and say to the pagans, in him we live and move and have our being. Every last person is included in this union, whether they know it or not, whether they feel it or not, whether they believe it or not. Belief doesn't get you in the club. Belief believes you're in, man. And, and this gospel is not so much an invitation as a declaration of reality. And just to wrap it up, <laughs> Colossians 2, I love it. One of my favorite passages. We see in verse 9, Jesus Christ has the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Doesn't say Jesus had a body. Jesus has a body. When he went up on the Mount of Ascent, he didn't just turn his body in like a Hertz rental car, okay? There will forever be a human being seated in the Trinity of God. God has forever determined not to be God apart from humanity. He has taken humanity into his own eternal identity. And Jesus did not just become he didn't pop into being the first Christmas morning. He is the eternal son of the father through whom all things were created. But from the first Christmas morning onward, he is God and man together in one person. And the incarnation is a permanent project. And Jesus has a full body, full soul, full human mind, completely human. Everything that humans have, everything that God has is in one person. That's a lot of God. He has the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Now, now that, think about that. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Spirit without measure. And to see Jesus is to see Jesus. A lot of God, right? The fullness of the Godhead, the pleroma. And let me say this about Holy Spirit too. Holy Spirit doesn't come in portions, okay? Uh, I know maybe you were part of a charismatic um, a church in the 90s and you had your Friday nights called the filling station or something. You know, that was a popular one. And uh, we get filled and then we run out. And then we get filled and then we run out and fast a little harder and uh, pray a little, a little deeper. And then we get a little bit more. Holy Spirit is not the force like on Star Wars, okay, that, that goes in and goes out. Just call yourself a Buddhist and be done with it, okay? Look, Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhead and you have him. He doesn't come in portions. He comes in person, and then the very next verse here is absolutely crazy. I've never met anybody that believes it. I wish that, that I believed it. Somebody say, John, I, I believe the Bible cover to cover. You intellectually agree with the Bible. Believe in it's a whole other thing. Okay, what does the next verse say? It says, now, by your union with him, you are full of it. That's a lot of God. That means you have 
Jesus. You have the spirit without measure. You have the father of lights who whispered the cosmos into existence. And where does he live? Da, 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 in your belly. You are squirting God out the soles of your shoes, dripping it out your eyeballs. You could not fit one more drop of God inside of you. Now, if you come from a charismatic background, I know what you're thinking. Well, John, brother, that's my religious guy voice from the South. Brother, you claim to have the fullness of God. You got to press in for the fullness of God. Well, how long is that going to take you to press in for the fullness of God? How far along are you? 3%? 14.8% of the fullness of God? We say, well, I, don't, I don't feel like I have the fullness of God. What is that supposed to feel like? to have a nuclear reactor in your belly. Your emotions and feelings cannot even wrap themselves around this infinite reality. No more than your four pound brain can figure him out, but it's still reality, amen? So what this does, the incarnation of Jesus, having the fullness of the Godhead. Now look, Jesus is not the father, quick free lesson on the Trinity. Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. There are not three gods. There is one God in three persons. John, I don't understand that. Welcome to the club. The mystery of the Trinity. Amen? <laughs> but to see Jesus is to see the fullness of the Godhead, because no person of the Trinity is ever separate from one another. That's the perichoretic interpenetration, the divine dance, the other giving circle of love. You, the Trinity comes in a package. That's why you don't get Jesus one day when you say a prayer and then fast and grunt hard enough and get Holy Spirit another day when you fall over and then do enough inner healing courses so that your deadbeat dad shows up. Listen, you have the full package and there will never be less than th four of you in the room at any given time, okay? To see one member is to see all members. No separation within the Trinity. And when you get that no separation and, and you start to look at the cross differently, you actually start to believe in the Trinity. You don't see demon son and holy Bible. You see a loving father manifest fully in the son and the power of a very real and tangible Holy Ghost. And this demolishes humanistic religion because I'm not pressing anymore. I've been pressed into. I'm not contending anymore. I've been contended for. I'm not a God chaser. He moves way too fast. He chased me down, roped and hogtied me. I've been bagged and dragged. I'm not trying to get closer to the Lord. How are you going to get closer to your Siamese twin? I mean, listen to all this prevalent language of distance and unfinished business. See, this destroys religion. And, and, and let me say this, and I, I really will end with this. We're minute 59. <laughs> it, it, it blows out of the water this, this example Jesus. You know, the WWJD, what would Jesus do? Because we just see Jesus as our example of what we need to do to suffer and die and get closer to God. And we've missed the whole vicarious humanity of Jesus as the Torrance brothers would say, that, that, that we have been united into God in his incarnation. So somebody's going to say, well, Jesus did his part, but brother, we need to do our part. No, silly. Jesus is your part. He is our human response to the Father. And he is uh, ministering God to us, but he is also standing in the Father's presence in our name as the high priest in perfect worship, which we get to participate in, but which doesn't fall on our shoulders as a responsibility. It is a gift of grace. So this whole thing about what would Jesus do, what I need to do, let me, I'll answer that question. If you still have a WWJD bracelet on, you'll be able to clip it off after this session tonight because I'm going to answer the age-old question. What would Jesus do? Okay. Jesus would do for you what you could never do yourself. He didn't just come to be our example but our substitute. I don't mean penal substitute. I don't mean being the father's whipping boy. Here's what I mean. He was a man of sorrow. So we could be a people of joy. 
He fasted so that we could feast. He was broken so we would be made whole. By his stripes, we were healed. Paul says he was made poor so we would be made rich. He stepped into our blindness so that we could see. He stepped into our darkness to plunge us into his glorious light. He stepped into our brokenness to make us whole. He stepped into our humanity to plunge us into his divinity. This is good news, my friend. Let me just pray for you guys tonight, if you don't mind. Lord, I just thank you for this glorious revelation of your finished work and your incarnate person. I thank you, Father, for a people waking up to Christology, waking up to the revelation that Jesus, in your divinity and humanity, you are our meeting place. There's nothing we can do to add to that. That you could no more remove your spirit from us, you would have to reverse the very incarnation. We are permanently united, and it's not our fault. That we are fully filled, whether we feel it or not, and it's not our fault. I thank you that as we rest in this, that the goosebumps do come. And I thank you that there is manifestation. But, but faith comes before the manifestation. And faith is not something we work up. It comes by hearing this reality. There's no effort involved. The effort's been holding us back because the effort assumes it's not done. And, and, and it's no more trying, but, but rest, the, the rest of faith. Lord, I thank you for the rest. For everybody who, who is dealing with any sickness, any pain, chronic pain, or the, they need healing in their body, that, Lord, we, we, wouldn't, um, we wouldn't be navel-gazing or, or trying to figure out what's wrong or why am I sick or why am I not sick and 40 steps to this and 40 reasons why it doesn't happen. We, just, we, we toss all that to the side. And we thank you, Lord, right now for your healing virtue, which, which is flowing through them right now, which is permeating every cell of their body. I thank you for every pain gone, every sickness gone, every chronic disease, chronic uh, fatigue, chronic headaches, even uh, tumors, be it benign or uh, uh, malignant tumors, Lord. I just, I thank you, Father, for all of that gone, just stripped away, that it's already done, that, that we are just awaiting and waking up into the manifestation of something that is already completely finished, finito, done, in Jesus' name. So, Lord, I just thank you, Father, auto accidents, um, sports injuries, whatever it may be. I thank you for healing for those right now. Just pain in the back, pain in the neck, pain in the knees, whatever it may be, pain in the feet. And if you're listening right now, this may sound like a hokey televangelist meeting. I don't really care, but just move your body part. Do something that would have hurt you before. And if you're not feeling pain in a meeting like this, even though it's online, that, that's a good thing. <laughs> so Lord, I just thank you, Father. I thank you for hair to grow back on mine and Mike's head. And Lord, I thank you for uh, fat shrinking miracles for every one of us. I thank you, Father, uh, 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 dental miracles, uh, money miracles, people just money popping in people's bank accounts, new jobs, better jobs, where COVID, you lost your job, it actually opened a door for a, a better job. I thank you, jobs we enjoy, better contracts, investment uh, opportunities, ideas, uh, downloads, that we enjoy where our work and our, 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 our play are not separate, but they're united as they should be. And so, Lord, I just thank you for that. I just thank you for your healing virtue and, um, and your supernatural kingdom manifesting even as it is already here and now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks, my friend. A uh, couple things is um, Christ in you, the hope and glory of every ethnos, every ethnicity. Jesus didn't come to just get you guys who said the magic words. He came to give every ethnicity. Mm. And uh, there's nothing you can do about it. It's already true. That's your brother next to you. And guess what? We, we share this a lot of times. Your Muslim brother was included. Your Democrat brother was included. Uh-oh, I can't say that in Colorado Springs very well, but we do. And I just tell you this, is uh, John's a big guy with the patristics to the fathers. I just, if you have courage, guys, go back and, and read, you know, some of the Cappadocian fathers and Athanasius and Origen. And it was so much better than what we heard because of what he referenced, the live separation. There's nothing that could separate you, only your fallen mindset. You could never be separated. There's no way that God would ever, ever, ever eternally torture somebody, his own creation, his own apple of his eye, the bride of Christ, the bride of himself, just in case you didn't love them back. That's early church, guys. We're not making this stuff up. This was the gospel, like you said, good news. So do me a favor. Um, as, uh, go get some of his books. Like he, he re- I put Mystical Union on there. You can even read it in English. <laughs> French might be good. Um, 
This is your latest, right? Cosmos Reborn, bud? Uh, that's not the latest, but, but that is uh, very relevant to what I was teaching on tonight. Yeah. 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 And so this, this one's provocative. You'll love this. Mm. Money, sex, beer, God. That's the latest, yeah. Uh, how Gnostic dualism invaded the church, killed the party, and taught you the world was evil. Guys, this is so relevant. You're seeing what's happening with the ultra-religious. It, it actually stirs up that craziness, and, and uh, you're free. You're so free. It's unbelievable. And that doesn't mean you're free to go do, be crazy. Be, the good news, what John's sharing, is actually holds you back. It, it's a teacher to teach you to deny craziness. And uh, in a bad sense is what I would say. So I would just ask you to do this, guys, is um, if you go to freedomministries.org, freedomministries.org, not live, where we sent you tonight, is uh, uh, I, would just, I would just thank you if you donate on there and just put John Crowder in there. We're going to send him a, a nice thank you. But um, this, is the, this gospel has, the true gospel has to be taught to people uh, like never before. And so... Uh, I would just, I would just thank you up front if you're willing to do that, if it impacted you to go do that. So anyway, love you, my friend. Appreciate you. Thanks for having the guts to, to uh, share the truly good news, not the good news. Yeah, but. Thank you very much, Mike. It's been fun. I appreciate you inviting me on here. We'll have to do it again sometime for sure. Yeah. Amen. So what we do, we'll let you go just because I know you got to be with family, but we usually hang out and stick around a little bit and, and chat about some of the things we just heard. And so anyway, love and appreciate you, my friend. So how do your family? Okay. Thanks a bunch, Mike. All right. See you, buddy. All right. Bye-bye.